2: Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. This week's guest is Michael Arsenault. He's the author of I Can't Date Jesus: Love, Sex, Family, Race, and Other Reasons I Put My Faith in Beyoncé. And this book is now a bestseller and it is how health- hilarious. Um, It is a lot about pop culture, a lot about Beyonce, a lot about his personal journey as a queer black man from Houston. And he may not seem like an obvious choice to be a guest on this show, although he has written about politics too. But as he and I discuss, you know, everything he mentions in that title has a political aspect to it. Jesus, love, sex, family, race, and yes, even Beyonce. Michael Arsenault, coming right up. I'd like to welcome to the show the New York Times bestselling author, Michael Arsenault. He is a Houston-bred Howard University-educated writer currently living in Harlem. Michael, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor.
2: I am. I am thrilled to have you. Uh, your book is hilarious. Thank you. I think it'll be a great follow up to anyone who has read the book by last week's New York Times bestselling author Rick Wilson. You are a great counterpoint.
1: <laughs> yes, I feel like I'm on Morning Joe. Um.
2: <laughs> you should be on Morning Joe. You, if you were on Morning Joe, I would totally tune in. Um, not that I don't already watch. <laughs> um, and it's it's called the book is called I Can't. Date Jesus, Love, Sex, Family, Race, and Other Reasons I've Put My Faith in Beyonce. And I almost want to tell people before you do the the excerpt that we've uh, decided on, the book isn't extraordinarily political, but I really liked this one section because I think it actually speaks to the ways that the book is political, which is that it's about your life.
1: Um, I really appreciate you saying that because um, – it's been hard. It was hard to sell this book. And One House in particular wanted me to be overtly political because I do political writing. But I wanted my life to be a political statement in of itself. So actually, that thank you for validating my position.
2: I've, I firmly believe that you're that, well, all of our lives are political. But um, I actually have some more questions in, in, about that particular intersection for you. But, but let's get on to, to the actual excerpt because I want people to hear why this is a New York Times bestseller.
1: Yes, this is from the pink print, which is a Nicki Minaj reference for anyone that is hashtag team Minaj. I don't care about white people like that. That's not to say I carry with me some pointed, irrational hostility towards white people. Granted, when I find instances of white folks engaging in some sort of racist stunt, I will look at black folks and other non-whites, let out an audible sigh, and maybe voice a comment such as white people. But no, I do not specifically abhor white people. I spread my hatred evenly, the way God intended. I didn't fixate on white people and whiteness because it was well-established that, as a collective, they found no value in me. Nevertheless, I knew black people were of value. Despite not growing up wealthy and despite being effectively segregated by way of that status, my mother made it clear that black people were not deficient. She took me to black doctors and dentists as a child. Although she couldn't afford it, She did want to place me and my brother in a private school. It was the Imani School, a private Christian school run by the Windsor Village Methodist Church, a hugely popular and predominantly black church. She was a devout Catholic, but she still wanted us to be at a Christian private school run by black people. Yes, my mom told me about racism. Not that it was hard to figure out as an early news junkie. But while it was made clear that I might face certain obstacles, I could overcome them because i had already seen a wide variety of all the things black folks could achieve on their own. In hindsight, My mom was preparing me for the times when I would be around white people, and whiteness made certain that I would enter those spaces with a sense of pride. I've learned over time that success in this world has a lot to do with one's proximity to whiteness. People overall value mainstream publications more than they do black media. Part of that is rooted in folks knowing how difficult it is to be able to have your voice in mainstream outlets. Still, I want to be a success, and that entails placing myself in spaces different from those I'm accustomed to. The struggle with that, though, is that I often am asked to leave with my otherness. I don't want to walk into a space pronouncing to be black or gay. I happen to be black, and I happen to be gay. These things inform my perspective, but I don't believe either requires a great announcement. Still, when you are one of a few, you're typically asked to speak from those places. Unfortunately, even when we are asked to write about ourselves, we are often asked to do so within even more rigid prisms. For instance, black uts and newer mainstream outlets run by younger editors will pretty much let me talk about whatever I want, however I want. Well, minus the one time a black male editor, younger than I, was warned me about using terms that phrase that he felt were too quote-unquote in-group, translation, stop sounding so black. He cared more about whiteness than I ever will, and I never wrote for him again, problem solved. In any event, with more traditional outlets, whenever commissioned to write about subject matter that's more personal, I've learned over time that the more pathos is involved, the better it will be received. You know, because it's so hard to be po-black me. Here are the topics mainstream outlets love for me to write about from the perspective of a gay black man. Black homophobia, AIDS, and sexual racism. I don't mind confronting black homophobia and transphobia, but it's always been twofold for me. I will condemn any mythology that suggests black folks are more magically anti-gay or anti-trans than white people, as if black folks came over on a cruise ship clutching their Bibles While saying they couldn't wait to pick cotton and keep Luther Vandross in the closet while also calling out black folks for trying to borrow white folks' oppressor baton and use it on issues related to sexuality and gender. As for the AIDS, well, yeah, I get it. And I try to confront the harsh realities of an epidemic that lingers on and on. With respect to sexual racism, I tend to cringe and roll my eyes so fervently that I'm always surprised that at least one of my eyeballs doesn't roll out of its socket to escape the abuse. The reason why I roll my eyes is that I'm supposed to take umbrage at the fact that I do not meet the sexual fantasies of a white man. Why? Because white men are the end-all be-all, don't you know? How could I not be so offended to the point that I must address the matter over and over and over again? Then place the topic in my back pocket and pull it back out on command. Hashtag all white dicks matter or whatever.
2: So the reason why I wanted you to read that passage— I should say, in some ways, it's not representative because you know there's no Beyonce, in right? It. Um, <laughs> and she's all over the book uh, in the best way possible. Beyonce, Janet Jackson, Nicki Minaj, uh, all of all of all of the greats. Um, but I think the reason I liked it so much is it it speaks to a lot of who you are, um, and like you just said, part of it is also it, it gets to the sort of the implicit political nature of just being a queer black man in the world today.
1: Yes. Um You know, and that, when I wrote that, it came from like this really, um, a big place of frustration because, um, while I'm very proud of the book and I'm really happy that it is reaching all types of people, there was a really big hesitance on anyone really wanting to take the chance because I didn't want to write about myself in the way that typically otherness is consumed, particularly as a queer black man. People expected me to write about white men not wanting to fuck me and I'm supposed to be so mad about that. Or people wanted (laughs) me to present my childhood, which is indeed chaotic, in this very specific way. Like you really want it's like pathology porn. Like if I had wanted to do that book, it would have sold much sooner, would have got way more money up front. But I think I would have hated myself because I feel like I would have been perpetuating an image of queer black men that I think needs to be Change. I think it's important to write about pathology. I think it's important to talk about sexual racism. But there is this expectation that I am supposed to care so much about what white people think of me, and I don't. And I will never mm-hmm. cower to that <laughs> narrative like or that position that I'm supposed to care that much because, frankly, that's just not how I move, and that's not, as I just read, how I was raised to think.
2: You know, it's it's funny. One of the parts of the book that I personally identified with was actually— that idea of turning one's own personal history into a kind of pornography. Right. Um, you write about. You referred to yourself as an essay hustler.
1: Yes. <laughs> a free, that's that's. <laughs> and a nice I assume you mean you mean
2: you mean hustler in the in the sort of classic sense. Yes.
1: I really regret not being a rapper or like being an escort in college, but like some well-off Republican <laughs> senator or lobbyist. I should have done oh,
2: me. and because the, then you wouldn't have to pay your student loans, which yeah, are actually exactly. sort of part of being an essay hustler, right? Yes. Um, um, go, I'm sorry. No, go ahead.
1: I was, it, um, I mentioned in the book how, and I kind of want to explore more this more broadly, like um, the next book, how, you know, a lot of my decisions, particularly professionally, were kind of based on the fact that I had this Significant amount of debt that was set up in a really bad way never take a private loan um, <laughs> And so there were I mean first of all I'd graduated when media was crumbling um, Because of digital and then it was the great recession So there weren't a lot of jobs to begin with and then in media everything was like the sky was falling So all these people that were making this obscene amount of money were like out of a job So I barely could do anything. So I still wanted to believe in the dream, but um, even when things got better Certain jobs I didn't take because, frankly, they just didn't pay enough for me to pay off the loan. So I constantly have to be trying to make money to pay them off so I won't default, so I won't mess up my mom's credit, so I won't ruin things for other people, so I won't destroy my credit. It's, yes, again, I wish I were a rapper.
2: <laughs> Which would be a different way of turning pathology into pornography perhaps, but this is a much more kind of abject way of doing it. And, and I won't pretend that I have the same kinds of, you know, structural issues that someone coming from your background does but I very much see you know played out over and over again this problem where if you want to be in media if you want to be a writer and you're someone who's not a straight white guy what you get paid the most to do is to be pitiful
1: yes Um, (laughs) and in that same chapter like I kind of have a very specific example Um, and I and I, and usually I'm Southern and shady, but I I do mean with all due respect to the editor that I wrote about, um, it was just interesting being lectured by someone who did not know my experience, um, and actually had the nerve to say that I was perpetuating stereotypes. for actually owning the parts of my culture that are like distinctly me, Southern Black Country, like very Houston, Louisiana. But she didn't have any problem with like messing up the headline to say that I've never dated Black men, like which immediately go, like there's an entire subgenre of queer black men particularly in the last five years who write again and again and again about white men not wanting to have sex with them repeatedly it yeah. is and that's what they want of us because the, and that's in their minds intersectionality that you're technically including <laughs> black people in the conversation <laughs> but solely within the context of being a sexual object right for white gratification like, uh, yeah my life would be actually better if i had leaned into that but again i would be miserable um and yeah go ahead Sorry.
2: No, it's, I think it's just one of the ways that like women and people of color are tasked with doing the emotional work for like a whole culture. Yes. <laughs> and that don't get compensated for it, right?
1: Not well. And, I mean, you can be rewarded for it, but at what cost?
2: Yeah, that that's actually the good point. Is like you do this emotional labor, and and you may you're rewarded materially, but even then, not that much. Um, but it's also at the cost of like. Just enacting the stereotypes that you're trying to get
1: rid of, yeah, you know? I,
2: or at I, least giving I want to be more sympathetic
1: to those people. But you know, okay,
2: you're right. I'm being, I'm being, I'm being harsh too. I'm, I shouldn't be because some of that writing is really great too, right?
1: I, I agree. I don't. I wouldn't say harsh. I guess what um, I want to be fair when I say this, I think for a lot of people that is genuinely their experience. Um, but okay. I also think most people can't afford the sacrifices to be in media. No matter your race or ethnicity, I will say even fewer black people or non-white people can afford those sacrifices. And of the very few black people that are in media, collectively, many of them come from a middle class, upper middle class background. And for, to a wider sense, well, I usually poke fun of the idea that the middle class actually exists, at least someone that is not lower, like in poverty, or like one check away. That is actually a, very much a privilege, particularly if you are black in this country. So a lot of those people I've at least come to find over the time, and I've been doing this for about a decade, they come from nicer families. Their families had them in um, mixed schools. And so in a lot of cases, they might have been the only black person there. So I understand for them why they carry that burden but I also think there should be room for other experiences from black people and other marginalized voices that are not that narrative. like I um I'm not pretending that I invented anything. It's very much a coming of age story. but I will say my perspective I've never heard in this medium and talking about it in this way, and it shouldn't be that difficult for people like me to get in these spaces because even while. You know, it's great to be a New York Times bestselling author. You know, I'm not over the humps yet. Mm. And if not for people being supportive, if not for just kind of being aggressively, like, writing, <laughs> I could be on my mama's couch as a New York Times bestselling author. It's it's like the the, the systems here are not really built for folks like me, so it's just very challenging. So, it, yeah, it's part of it is, like, those are people's experiences, but the fact that those are the only people that can really be in these positions to tell their stories. It says a lot, and I think most... Like a lot of these editors, they don't think about it because they don't have to.
2: Yeah, I guess the thing I'm trying to point out, and, you're, and I, I, I think I was personally, you can we can talk about whether it's too harsh or not. I, I just think it's fascinating to point out these two kind of systems that are working mm-hmm. to um, create some uh, a very a very specific view of otherness in media, right? Like that, even well-meaning white folks might not understand has has been shaped for them yeah and like this the structural force of you know the uh turning your you know grief or your uh trauma into some kind of pornography and the structure of what kinds of people of color make it in media right which as you point out at least did the experience that you're you're talking about is that it tends to be black people who kind of know how to talk to white people, it seems like.
1: Yes, and that's a skill set that, again, it's an exposure to white people you you learn over time in school. Like, I didn't necessarily really have it per se. I just think, thankfully, my mom just kind of raised me in a particular way. So, and kind of just being inquisitive, being smart and kind of consuming media a lot. It maybe taught me how to have those interactions, and thankfully my mom, as I like write, kind of instilled a sense of pride, so I didn't enter those situations thinking I was less than. But yeah, even that is a skill set like a lot of people don't have. And then, you know, there are a lot of journals I know who exist primarily in black media who I don't think will ever kind of translate over because they don't know how to talk to white people or they don't really still have the access to get pulled in. And then a lot, in a lot of cases, even me, some of these mainstream outlets that I've r- written for, it's been because of black people who might be the one or two in those spaces who can pull me in.
2: You just remind me of a, a point in my life where I had my whiteness um, very much uh, shoved in my face in a good way. Mm-hmm. When I was talking to someone from Philadelphia, this is a couple of years ago, about uh, a youth program that he ran as a black person, and he was talking about how what he was doing was getting um, these young people jobs and offices. Over the summer, mm-hmm. and I think I made some kind of joke about running copiers, right? Like the kind, the thing that you might, if you're a white person, you might stereotypically imagine interns doing, and like that's a scut sh- work or whatever. Yeah. And the guy was like, "Well, these these people, otherwise, they're not going to see an office, like,
1: Oof. Yeah. they don't it,
2: the the kind of office culture." And he kind of explained to me is like the office culture that like white people take for granted. You know, it's just like you kind of grow up knowing how to operate around an office. Yeah. Like that's a privilege.
1: That is. And actually, I hadn't thought of it literally since high school, but there was a program in my high school where I actually ended up working at a black law firm um, that used to represent Destiny's Child. or at least two of them at Sue Beyonce. It's a fucking aside. Um, but that actually taught me office culture. And if not for that co op program, i don't think i would have learned it until i actually interned at c-span so i wouldn't have had any real preparation um i hadn't thought of that until you just said it but yeah that's a good point about office culture
2: with friends like these is sponsored by talkspace the online therapy company that lets you message a licensed therapist from anywhere at any time all you need is a computer with an internet connection or the talkspace mobile app That means you can improve your mental health even if you've had trouble making time for it in the past. Can't imagine fitting anything else into your life? Well, with Talkspace, therapy is as easy as sending your therapist a message. Get something off your chest whenever you need to. Talk about everyday challenges at work or at home. Just chat. There are no extra commutes, no leaving the office, and no judgment. Remember that therapy isn't just about venting your innermost thoughts or digging into childhood memories. It's also about practical everyday strategies for stress management and living a happier life. Having a therapist simply provides you a designated person for you to talk to and who is trained to listen and help you make positive changes. The Talkspace platform has over 2,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing the life challenges we all face. To match with a perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com slash WFLT and use the code WFLT to get $45 off your first month and show your support for this show. That's Talkspace.com WFLT and the code WFLT. One of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth, yet most of us don't do it properly. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth a more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable affair. Most people brush too hard, and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. With Quip, a built-in two-minute timer pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping guide a full and even clean. Up to 90% of us don't brush for a full two minutes or don't clean evenly. Quip comes with a multi-use cover to mount to your mirror and unmount to slide over your bristles for on-the-go brushing. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. And Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association and has thousands of verified five-star reviews. Now, why do I like Quip? It's something they didn't mention. It's really cool looking. It doesn't look like a normal toothbrush. It definitely doesn't look like a regular electronic toothbrush. Uh, And I like things to spark joy. You may have heard that phrase somewhere. I like stuff that makes me happy and things that look pretty make me happy. And I'm actually more likely to use the things that look pretty and make me happy. It is a total bonus that it has the guiding pulses and that I have to do that two minutes. So if you want to try Quip... And if you want to see why they are backed by over 20,000 dental professionals, well, you can try Quip. It starts at just $25. If you go to getquip.com slash friends right now, you will get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash friends. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash friends. Friends, you know, we—I I, want to um, let people know that one of the reasons that your book is a New York Times bestseller is—is, is, although the stuff about whiteness is the part that I find really fascinating, and I could talk to you about it forever. But whoa, there's a lot of sex too. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> yes, there is a lot of sex. Um, that yeah, I'm, I'm I'm talking about learning how to hold without the fear of God, but it—but more like, seriously, it's it—it it is about. Learning your identity, forging your identity through like a real expression of sexuality and actually learning to enjoy pleasure because I um, grew up, I call myself a recovering Catholic, um, no shade to practicing Catholics, but um, I think some of you will get it. And I had a really exposure to AIDS, so I just was very paranoid about sex for a really, really long time.
2: And I don't, I mean, I am not denigrating at all the idea that's about sex. I think sex is pretty important. Yes. And I think that it's also political in, in a way, right? And, and, I, you talk about in the book, you know, after having this early exposure to um, AIDS being fatal, uh, your uncle dying, you reach a point where you couldn't deny your I'm quoting your, you to you now. I couldn't deny myself pleasure anymore. And I know specifically you're talking right there about sex, but I also know that you've said that this book is about unlearning every damaging thing I've seen and heard about my identity. And I think that pleasure is a really important part of taking back identity.
1: I I agree. And, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, um, queer people are more visible um, in media overall. I mean, there are still many, many problems. But even particularly with the idea of two queer men being sexual on camera, that you still don't really see a lot of that. I mean, you saw it a little bit um, uh, on how to get away with murder, I believe. Like, it was one very graphic scene, um, which was actually really bold, so I was saluting him, but I know that show was run by a gay man, so that makes sense. Uh, created by, excuse me. Um, but even when looking, like one on HBO, one of the criticisms, I mean, I thought the show was like perfectly fine. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like a lot of sex. I mean, there was there were moments there, but, and actually one criticism I got in some reviews, someone tagged me on on Twitter, uh, was saying that the, the graphicness of my book or talking about so sex would turn some readers off because i think a lot of times you still see um this is childish to say but like they make it seem like it's icky like two queer Mm -hmm. men actually being sex whereas you can still see queer women or at least uh what are what is defined as (laughs) attractive women they can be sexual on camera but that's also still appeasing like a male a straight male's like sexual appetite like whereas you don't i'm not get i'm not going to get them off so they're not going to see people like me uh doing that and I, i still think that's so interesting like you there are not really many spaces for us to like talk about sex again without necessarily talking about AIDS or necessarily g- being completely pornographic. I mean, I'm a bad thought, as I mentioned in the book, but there's like a romanticism to some of the sex. So you could tell that I'm like a recu- i am like I want to be like in love before I can bang it out. Am I being too graphic? Let me know.
2: <laughs> oh no, no, you can also curse if you want. Okay. Um. Uh. I, you, you just said um, that, you know, uh, filmmakers or creators wouldn't show people like you having sex because you don't do it for them. I think maybe one reason they don't do it is they're worried that you might.
1: <laughs> that's actually very true. Yeah, that's, a, you know, I, well, they need to come home and let me be me. More people like me be on the camera. Um, but I'm working on that, too, so we'll see.
2: I think it's Crooked Media's own Ira Madison that said, I think on this show, something about how um, – the dearth of um, same-sex relationships and same-sex, same-sex sex, sex, actual sex, in movies and popular culture is, when you think about it, actually really offensive in a way. It is that it's treated with so gingerly, you know. And he, I think he said something. I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to not say it. as fun. It's hilariously as he did but something along the lines of like what you know what what does it feel like for me to just have to watch straight people make out don't what don't you think of my feelings i
1: was a cackle i agree also and there's actually not a lot of displays of like two black men or two latinx men or like two asian queer men like actually depicted together you still don't even see that a lot of times it's just literally like a black and white guy Mm. I mentioned the book. um, It's changed a little bit, but initially in Harlem, when I first moved here, um, there were all of these prep ads, but none of them were with two black men. And don't get me wrong. Like I write about Ryan Phillippe. That man is fun. He helped me realize I was gay. I will forever love him and his ass. He's still fun to me. I get it. However, if I'm in Harlem, I shouldn't only see ads with like two white guys or like a white guy and a black guy. Like, I should be able to see two black men, two Latinx men. I should be representative of the community. I understand that things are changing, but I should be able to see that, particularly in an area where, like, the HIV-AIDS crisis is still so bad in poor black and brown communities, specifically they don't reach out to us.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: if you're trying to reach out to us, then you need to show us in all forms. You know, I love miscegenation. It gave me Mariah Carey and Barack Obama. I get it. But we also need to see everything. Just, uh, there's a lot of frustrations. But, yes, I just wanted to elaborate on Ira's point.
2: <laughs> so we've covered there's, there's an interesting kind of politics in the book. Um, there's a lot of hilarity in the book. There's a lot of sex in the book. And before we leave sex, I will say that I found my comfort level pushed Uh-oh. when you talked about how early on you realized you were gay. The, oh. the experience of childhood sexuality, of experiencing and expressing your sexuality as a child.
1: You know what made me comfortable about finally saying that out loud because I kind of, I worried if something was like innately wrong with me. Um, it was a Janet Jackson interview uh, in the 1993 Rolling Stone, which I quote, but um, she just talked about being a late bloomer, how she had these sexual feelings, even as a child. Um, granted, they were for Barry Manilow, um, different strokes. <laughs> but... When I read that, even as a kid, and then, you know, I just kind of, because I, I, again, I love Jenna Jackson, so um, she's my first Beyonce, but, well, there was nothing before Beyonce, but you get it. Um, yes. When I go back and read she it as was a I prophet, got older and more She's a prophet, kind of. She's the prophet
2: who prepared you. <laughs> she's the prophet who prepared the way for Beyonce.
1: Yes, 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 yes. Okay. I love that. Um, okay. She mentioned that, and I felt, like, heard. And, I, you know, and she, even in that more recent interview in Style, she said she didn't really feel sexual until her 30s. But when she talked about it as a child, I felt like, oh, my gosh, like, this is fun. Like, I just, I don't remember ever not knowing about sex in terms of procreation, but I did have these feelings as a kid, and I I used to think they were disturbing. And then when Janet re- read that, and as an adult when I was writing the book, I was like, did I want, do I want to really put that in the book? Do I want to own that? And I thought, yes, be more like Janet Jackson, so... <laughs> yeah, but that's interesting. It made you put your comfort zone because I, you know, with the recent death of Jamel Miles—I might be saying his name wrong—but um, the nine-year-old boy who knew he was gay and he ended up com- uh, committing suicide. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people that knew early on that they liked—they um, or that, that they were queer—but um, there is this weirdness about it.
2: Yeah, you know, I think I think the way our culture is currently situated, and maybe I should just talk about white culture since that I realize there's, there's difference there. Um, I feel like even us woke white people, uh, while we totally can get, can get down with the idea that a child might um, uh, experience themselves as trans or might identify as, as gay or lesbian or whatever, the idea that that, that might be something connected to pleasure Right. Is hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that idea that it might actually be something that has to do with the naughty bits. Right. You know, like, well, Ugh. I think people it kind of it kind of um, makes people feel squeamish, although that's exactly of course it has to do with that.
1: Yeah. You know? of that it does. that uncomfortableness with queer people kind of expressing themselves. So because, I mean, when I talk to like my straight friends, they all play doctor. They all had these little crushes and urges. It wasn't. I mean, that's the same thing, but it's—and I'm not assigning that to you, but I think, co- like, collectively, there's still, like, that oddness, and I think that comes from the fact that you still don't really see us be like y'all all around. Yeah. And so not, not yeah. having that kind of skews them on a bit.
2: I think, I think you're right. I think until we see, you know, same-sex couples represented with the same kind of frankness that—I um, I always want to say opposite sex, which— yeah. <laughs> Um, whatever non same sex couples uh, uh, are visible, I think this probably going to be that same. There, there's always squeamishness around childhood sexuality, period. But mm-hmm. even then, like hippy dippy types like myself, like who want to not ha- be squeamish, yeah.
1: Um,
2: I think can find can find it, and probably just, you know we will. In, until again, like you said, like that's why one of the re- one of the reasons that we don't think about a lot, but one of the reasons why, rep- why representation is important.
1: I appreciate you asking me, actually, because I feel like other people that I've talked to about the book wanted to or tiptoed around it. But no one flat out asked about that. Um, you didn't put it as me being a thought like my friends do as a kid. But no, I actually appreciate <laughs> you asking me because I, I one interview be in particular. I felt I could tell they were uncomfortable and they wanted uh-huh. to ask, but then it's kind of skipped to something else. We went back to Jesus. So I was like, all right, amen. And we'll do that. But thank you. I actually appreciate you asking me. You know, I,
2: we're going to have to get to Jesus. And I think that Jesus is one of the reasons why people thought I should interview you. Like you were recommended in addition to us connecting on Twitter. Um, but there's so much more. <laughs> there's <laughs> yeah, so I, much I more to talk a about. in book. <laughs> um, and, not, and again, not just about sex. Um, uh, but it, maybe the segue here is actually be, between sort of sex and Jesus is your mom.
1: Yes. If you mother. don't that sounded bad, maybe, <laughs> No, it's it's perfectly fine. That that actually explains her discomfort with the book and, <laughs> and me talking about yeah. all of it. So yes, it's a perfect segue.
2: Well I'm always fascinated um by stories of people of, of how people kind of come to believe what they do and how they decide who they are. And I, I th- I'm especially interested in cases like yours where the person you've become wouldn't necessarily have been it's not a straight line. Mm-hmm. From from how you were raised. No, uh, if I didn't mean to put the pun there, but you know a, what I mean.
1: It's a big detour. Um, <laughs> as, she, as she continues, <laughs> not to straight. Remind me. <laughs> if you know,
2: if it, it, not straight, if you will. Yes. Um, you were raised by parents who were pretty explicit in their intolerance of homosexuality. Yes. Um, but you also give your mom a lot of credit for helping you become who you are today. A proud, outspoken out you know hilarious person
1: thank you so Uh,
2: yeah explain that
1: it was so interesting um I'm so much like my mom but I think I'm my mom without inhibitions and I say this with all the respect in the world because my parents are um they passed on but I think I am in a lot of ways what if my mom hadn't been broken by her parents who um, didn't necessarily intend to do that, but did. And I think if I had listened to my mom the way she listened to her parents, I'd be a totally different person and I'd be re- incredibly unhappy. And to be blunt, I actually don't know how life might've gone because on the other side of my family, there, the, the many of the arsenal men have gone down difficult paths. And turn to vices and things to kind of help them deal with certain stuff, and I know for a fact how easy that is because um, one thing I actually tried to do with my father as well was to be really fair to both of them, particularly about why my dad is the way that he is and why he's grappled with um, alcohol and the like. But my mom, it's it's still a dicey subject because I I revere I love my mom so much. Um, she's the strongest person I know. I have such a profound respect for the role that Faith has played in her life and continues to play. And I know in my heart of hearts, she thinks that she's saving my soul. And she's loving me the best way that she can. And one thing that I kind of notice in a lot of the narratives, particularly from queer people, is that you usually kind of only get pushed out or like a wide range of acceptance, or like a full acceptance, and not really kind of dealing with that difficult middle, that weird grayness. and I didn't want to pretend that there would be any real resolution because frankly, I don't know. Like when I went home from um, the book tour, my mom did not go to the event. Um my aunt then reminded me that my mom, even if she was completely supportive, she probably wouldn't anyway because she kind of chills at home. But we I went over the house and we she wanted she didn't want to talk about it, but I knew I had to say something. And she just she it was literally like living out the chapter in real time. It was kind of like the stage play version of the <laughs> chapter. Um, I think, my, and well, I really that still says a sensitive subject. I just kind of wish she understood my position on faith better. But I also realized that if she were to challenge that aspect of her religion in assessing me, then she would then start to end up probably potentially questioning everything else. And for a lot of people, if you don't have your interpretation of faith, if you don't have like the faith as you know it that's carried you through most of your life, then what do you have? So I think it's it's safe for her to stay in that space rather to really kind of check it the way I did. But yeah, I don't know. We'll see when if I um, when I get a boyfriend and want to bring him, <laughs> home. I'll update you. Sorry, was there any specific question on my fault?
2: Uh, no, I that was really fascinating. Especially something I kind of keyed into what you were saying was. You feel like you are the person your mom could have been if she hadn't listened to her parents. And I wonder if what you might be alluding to there is that the strength that you got from her and the confidence and the intelligence and the analytical nature and the curiosity, that was the stuff that you saw her doing. Yeah, Who she was, not what she said to you.
1: Right, you know, and and, um, and even with, I will say, my mom has accomplished a whole lot. And what kind of what I mean by that is that I, I, she had even greater ambitions, and they kind of were pushed out. And then she had to get married, and she had all these children, and she was in this situation. So while, you know, I'm grateful to be, I'm obviously happy to be alive, I do wonder, mm-hmm. like, what would my mom have been like if she hadn't have been, I won't say burden, but if she hadn't had the kids, or if she financially could have divorced my dad, what would her life look like? What if she kind of, kind of, you know, I love my grandmother, but what if she had not listened to her about certain things that she said to herself? You know, my mom didn't, when it came down to it, you know, we didn't have the money for me to go out of state, but I was determined to do it anyway. And she helped. Um, I, you know, I know in her heart of hearts, she kind of wishes I had become a corporate lawyer, was Greek, fell into a vagina, had a bunch of (laughs) children, got married, go to church. You know, because, you know, I'm one of the few that really got out of that, you know, the area and... I chose to be a writer, which is not the most lucrative thing to, <laughs> to do, um at least not immediately. So, but she still has, you know, helped in however she could or just been encouraging. Like even if she doesn't like what I'm doing, she's not discouraging. Um right. now, I mean, she used to say some things, but she's always taken it back. She really has pushed me. I, I yeah, I really wouldn't have got this book done without her. It's it's interesting that she won't read it, but I get it. <laughs> yet, yeah, she, she's yet. never going to read it.
2: Um, so we get a fair amount of email here having to do with fraught family relationships and kind of how to navigate mm-hmm. them. And some of them have to do with parents wanting to do the right thing for their kids and, and raise their kids in wokeness. Right. Um, and I wonder if your story about your mom just really speaks to how important – it is to live your values rather than to try and teach your children with words what to do. Because it sounds, again, because it sort of sounds to me like what your mom told you explicitly was gayness is bad. You know, you might go to hell. Um, you're different, all those other things. But what she showed you on a day-to-day level was support and love.
1: Right. Um and I will, because um, I actually haven't mentioned it because it hadn't come up. But I will say we had a con- <laughs> during the conversation about the book that I ended up bringing up. She did say, you know, it's not just that you're gay, my, you know, gay. My, like there are other relatives that are gay. Not um, my place to out them, but they're gay. Gay people all around. It's just, it's like it's it's one of it's 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 that weirdness. Like that's sometimes when I talk to religious people, particularly of a certain type, it's it's the same thing. It's it's very Catholic actually. It's like. Yeah, you're gay. It's not that big of a deal, but and then she repeats something that actually (laughs) shows that it is still a a big deal to you. Um, But one thing about my mom that I do appreciate in everything about her, she's a true believer. Um, So I really do have a lot of respect. There are a lot of people who pretend to be about like faith. Like I, I could, I could have certain criticism about you know certain things, and I'm sure she would have plenty for me. But overall, my mom really practices what she preaches. And to your point. She really did show me as much as she showed me more than she told me. Um, But again, I think with religion, there's a little hole there, but she's never gonna let me kind of pull it out more of her. Cause she just, she needs to believe what she believes because that keeps her where she's at. And as, as it's kind of, I don't wanna say it's selfish, but my mom has been through so much. But so if her faith keeps her where she is and keeps her going then I have to kind of just let her rock. And she already told me I care too much about what she thinks anyway.
2: (laughs) And I love that she told you that.
1: I do too. (laughs) Um, And and
2: and I also should say, like, it's not that it's not important what you say to your kids, obviously. One should be kind and all of that. But I just think it's really interesting, like, how much she gave you through her actions and through the way that she lived. Like, that that's her, her legacy to you. Like she's one of the reasons why you're why you're so outspoken, right? She's she one is. of the reasons why you why you have the strength that you do.
1: She is. Um, it's such a. I can't wait to work this out with my personal faith cream. <laughs> but yeah, she is. Um, and you know, my my dad is interesting too. But it, it is a lot of yeah. my mom. Uh, I'm very much a mama's boy, and I look just like her. I, uh, yeah, there's <laughs> there's a you, lot of in, things. It's just, I'm just very much the gay her.
2: <laughs> yes. Um. And, you know, I mentioned we get a lot of email because we solicited, I should say, um, about family relationships and family dynamics. And reading in your book and, and noticing the grace with which you've kind of dealt with your, both your father and your mother and letting them have this gray area and mm-hmm. in, in not necessarily kumbayaing it and not necessarily you're dead to me, but just kind of letting the relationship be. I do think that narrative isn't really out there very much, and and on this show in particular, I feel like we hear from a lot of you know well-meaning white people who just want to have resolution about whatever it is in their lives. They want to be, know what to do about their racist uncle, right? And I feel like maybe there's not an answer.
1: <laughs> that's and thank you because honestly, that's that that's just, I I just honest I don't think there's there is going to be really much of a. Um, Answer. It's always it's it's going to be this awkwardness. Um, I think the plot twist is that I I mentioned the book. My dad actually has probably has more progressive views about, uh, me being gay than she does. But, you know, sometimes you don't get the closure that you're seeking. You have to create your own. And you know, I don't put on airs that you know I would like to think that my mom will gradually change because eventually, you know, I'm gonna. You know, I ideally have like a partner. What is that going to look like? Um, my the rest of her family that I'm closest to, they're not gonna walk away from me. If anything, they are decidedly um, interested in me <laughs> dating. Like it's her sisters that are like, <laughs> decide, "Are you seeing anybody?" It's it's cold in New York. Don't I don't want you lonely. You're so handsome. Like you got to have somebody. So that's <laughs> nice. But you know, with um, yeah, that's the thing. A lot of people want closure. They want a resolution. They want you to tell them this is what you should do. Um, there's not one, there's not really one way to deal with this kind of thing I think it, it literally is a case by case if your uncle is racist, you might have to put your uncle in rice for a while, but in the situation of like this, where it's not a complete rejection, it's, you know if I didn't think that the if I didn't think that there was like still a really deep love and support there between my mom then I frankly would have had to cut her off because I think ultimately that's which some of us have to do um, I would never want it to get to that point, so this is where we are. Um, but yeah, I and, I and thank you for saying the grace thing because one thing I wanted to do, I'll be honest, if the book had came out sooner when maybe I first was trying to shop it or something a while ago, it might have been more ang- It might have been angrier. I think it everything happened the time it was supposed to. Um, to God and Beyonce be the glory, but. I needed to heal, and I needed to forgive them, and I also needed to kind of put myself more in their shoes, in their positions, and truly understand why they are the way that they are, and how that impacted me, and how I choose to kind of like move forward from that. However, things go, um, and I don't think m- not. I want I want to assign anybody else's feelings to it. I would just say I'm really glad that everything happened on the way that it did because I think it it made more sense to write my parents this way because this, a book is forever. So I'm really glad I had kind of reached a certain—as much peace as I could get. I'm glad I had reached that before I really kind of talked about them. Again, neither one of them will ever read it. But, you know, my aunts have read it, and they said I was respectful um, and honest. (laughs) So if I have the auntie coast on, then I'm okay.
2: Um, We're going to have to wrap up, but I have to ask you. One of the very first things I, I thought of to ask after I read the first chapter, you mentioned that you still pray. Yes. You're a recovering Catholic. You're not an atheist. No. not an agnostic. Mm-hmm. But you definitely pray. When's the last time you prayed?
1: Last night. Um, really? Yeah, I t- actually tend to pray every night before I go to sleep. Uh, I'm usually, um, I still get on my knees, as I mentioned in the book. Um, and as someone reminded me, because I actually talked to some young Catholics recently, um, you know, the young evangelicals, they... They like this heathen, I guess because I'm nice about it, not mean <laughs> about religion. Uh, for me, um, I, I will admit, it's it's a weird, I, Like I, again, it's I allow greatness. Um, I look around and I see the beauty of the world and I see the beauty in people and I think it comes from somewhere. I don't necessarily think it's this kind of white beard male God that I was taught to believe in. But I do think there's something bigger than us and I do think that comes from some place. And so when I pray, I try not to, you know, make seem like a genie asking for wishes, but I do pray for the safety of my family and betterment of like of them my family and my friends. If there's something particularly going on, I just kind of put that out into the world and, you know, I do say like that I pray that I'll be okay. Um but it's it's just my way of you know I don't necessarily do the prayers I mean I remember a lot of the prayers that I was taught um, because I said them so many times for like at least almost twenty years so you never forget them completely but I tend to kind of like just talk um, and say a few things and before I go to sleep it's as I mentioned it's my way of keeping the line of communication open but I do think there's something bigger I think maybe with Tom that might come more defined but I do I think the Christian values that um, I I, I think Jesus is a swell guy Um, he seemed amazing Um, I try to live by his virtues for the most part to be good to people to be giving, to be kind um, to call out injustice, to, to kind of live to those things but yeah um it's, I know it's. I know because I don't. I don't. I'm not agnostic. so I don't have like a defined God, but I. I. I believe in something, so I try to still speak to that spirit because I. You know, face. I think you can't completely go it alone. At least I can't. So that's my way.
2: <laughs> um. Yeah. Well. Help, hopefully, also you'll find your bow. Yeah. Too. You know.
1: Find me a man, Tony Braxton. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate all the questions about sex and the Lord. Thank you, by the way.
2: Those are my two main interests, really, in politics. Yes. So we covered a lot of things um, that I'm interested in. Um, and I'm just glad to find someone else that's as interested in them as I am. And that's it for the show. All the usual messages for the super fans apply. Please rate and review. Please support our sponsors. And a little reminder, I am going to be at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin in September. I will be uh, doing a panel about faith and justice and politics so look that up and then also I am part of the left-right-center live show tour of America, at least the two coasts Um, so if you're in uh, New York, LA, or San Francisco you can come to one of those live shows and I will be there on the stage and you can see me roll my eyes at Rich Lowry rather than just sense me rolling my eyes at Rich Lowry like I, I usually do Uh, All that stuff is happening in September. I'm bad with numbers and bad with dates. You have a Google machine. Use it. And as always, please take care of yourselves.